This is Making It Up, a weekly culture news podcast focused on analyzing and debating whatever comes up of interest in creative culture. I'm Eugene Can, and my co-host is Sharice Poon. The format of this podcast is a light catch-up at the start, followed by two main items of news, one chosen by myself and one chosen by Sharice. We pick our topics every week from the Make-In Briefing, which is an email we send out that's filled with current news, interesting links, and more analysis on culture. On Making It Up, we talk through the two things that we're most interested in and then try to come to some kind of conclusion, whether it's on the state of culture, media, tech, food, anything in our modern times. If you like this podcast and would like to do something to support us, the one thing that really helps is to share your favorite episode with a friend. Wow, it's been a minute, hasn't it, Sharice? You've been traveling everywhere. I've been traveling and now you're traveling. So I've been responsible in tr- trying to organize this thing. Yes, you have been responsible for organizing a thing. <laughs> yeah, you were. That's in, like a good. You were in Amsterdam, right? I was in Amsterdam. I asked that as if I didn't know, but I totally knew you were there. Yes, thank you, Eugene, for pretending. Good acting job. Anyways, what were you doing in Amsterdam exactly? That's what I don't. You know. know, it's so funny. No. My topic for today, because you sent this to me. My topic. I'll just give it away now. The article is called "How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation," and I was like. That's not going to be descriptive of me. <laughs> What's interesting is that in terms of picking the topics, just so people are kind of familiar, I don't know if it's because it's better if I do it or it's easier if one person does it. But generally, what I do is I'll look at what topics or links were in the previous briefings of the week. And I'll just kind of dump them on Sharice. I'll be like, these are the ones I personally am interested in. Some of them, you know, I probably don't really have a strong point of view on and I'll narrow maybe five to seven links down to you know anywhere from three to four and then we just pick off those ones. Honestly, I think you're saving me time. Yeah, if it's a matter of convenience, then I guess we're admitting that right now that maybe it could be better. Because like, if I don't like your links, I'll go works. back through the briefing and go try to find something on my own. Which doesn't happen that often. Doesn't happen that often, but I feel that freedom. I know that I can, but usually I trust your five links to be the most likely anyway from the briefing. It's hard because I don't necessarily know why I picked them. Oh, that's weird. I just kind of have something that's personally interesting. Like maybe if I was to go through it with a fine tooth comb, I'd be like, okay, I know exactly why these stuck out to me. But generally it's more like a gut reaction. That's true. But that's how I go through it too. I guess the gut reaction is like, do I want to talk about this or not extensively on making it up? Wait, but I have to get back to the point here. So you asked me why I went to Amsterdam and I said that article you picked basically explains it because I was thinking of it as like a mini vacation to myself because like I was alone, you know, I wasn't with my boyfriend or a friend and it wasn't purely for work, even though I did wind up doing work. And I guess it worked in a way. But In terms of bringing you a, a bit of... What? Distance. What did, what did it bring I you? think distance from people. You hate people is what you're trying to say. Sure. Yeah. Eugene's just going to twist my words. I don't hate people. It's just nice that I got some time in between Hong Kong where I'm with my family and, you know, where Macon is and this established community. And then also London where I have school and have to be somewhere like 25 hours a week where I could just be by myself and not do anything. Got it. Yeah, so that's kind of so why So what was the I was highlight there. of your trip? 
I mean, the food. <laughs> the food was a highlight. I mean, you already know how I feel about the food, which is why you said that. Um, I do not rate the food. So if any, I'm sorry for people from the Netherlands, but that was definitely the low point. But it's also because you went by yourself. I think that's always going to be that's true. one thing that kind of holds you back. Because if, if a local takes you a spot they think is amazing and it sucks, then that's maybe true. you do have a case or a point. The coffee was really good. I drank a lot of coffee. <laughs> Actually, the Arsham show was a highlight. It was genuinely something that I enjoyed, even though I had to work. If I could have gone and just enjoyed it as a gallery show, I also would have yeah. enjoyed the it. The Daniel Arsham show. Yes, the is. Daniel Arsham show. Oh, it's Static Mythologies. It's at the gallery Ron Mandos. It just opened this past weekend, and we should be publishing a short interview with him on Macon. How do you think his work impacted you seeing it in the flesh knowing a lot about Arsham. Yeah. A lot maybe just because he's in many ways a quite a popular artist within a certain subset of culture. Yeah. But it's true because Arsham's work, he's, for anyone who doesn't know, he's a sculptor, artist, architect, and his work is quite recognizable. Lately, he has been doing a lot of these works that are casts of objects but have erosions in them, essentially. And it was this interesting thing where it's like, oh, I feel like I've seen all of this stuff digitally, but this is the first time I get to sort of physically appreciate something. Yeah. One thing I'm curious too is that there's that persona, like Daniel Arsham, the fine artist, and there's the other side of him, which is in many ways sort of this influential person that kind of is in the sneaker world, street culture world. What I'm always interested in to hear from other people is how do they see those two things? Like, do you think that by virtue of him being placed in a certain, I guess, vertical, for lack of a better word, because I can't think of a better word right now, it's like Daniel Arsham, the guy that does Adidas sneakers versus Daniel mm. Arsham, the fine artist. Do you think that by virtue of him being in one world and known for that, that it removes his ability to be a credible source for the fine art side? I don't. I, I don't personally feel that way. Yeah. And Do you think it's because they're sufficiently segmented? Where like the, the person that's interested in Daniel Arsham's fine art doesn't pay that much attention or they just see Adidas as a cherry on top and vice versa? No, I think that the art world is changing. I think maybe a little bit slowly, there are still people who are interested in the gatekeeper aspects of the art world. But in general, I think they're recognizing, actually, we really need young people, again, millennials, to buy art to keep this thing sustaining. So how do we appeal to young people? Got it. No, that's fair. I'm, I actually wasn't trying to lead any which way. I'm just curious because people like you and I maybe know him. I don't know. I don't like to, I don't like to impose that sort of perspective, but like... I've always known him as an all-encompassing thing, mm -hmm. and I find that really fascinating. But I'm just curious, like, you know, if he's known as a guy that has that or he does that, like, do you lose some of the fullness of the story behind what someone does? That's all. Hmm. I feel like I'm struggling to pick my words today. I kind of don't want to give away something that's in the interview. Um, should we get into it? Wow, that was really uh, British phrasing there on that question. I know, I, I, fe I felt very British there. 
All right, my topic this week is how pizza could save the world. I feel it's kind of a clickbaity title, but well, let's put it this way. It worked on me. I clicked in and I was like, oh, this is pretty interesting. It's a nice way of framing up problems through a system. And it actually provided context and helped me further sort of reinforce my belief in creating systems or just ways of thinking, right? Yeah. This Fast Company article details the experiences of Don Norman, who was on vacation in Hawaii, and he co-wrote this piece with Eli Spencer, a professor of medicine who heads up the Center for Health at the Design Lab. So Don Norman, someone that was largely unknown to me, maybe you know who he is because he's pretty well-known in the design world. I'm not I cannot really say I do. That world. He's a really well-known design thinker. He holds positions at the said Design Lab at the University of California, San Diego. He's also the co-founder behind the Nelson Norman Group, which is basically a design consultancy. So during his vacation in Hawaii, he noticed this disparity between the luxurious resort he was staying at and his surroundings. So, I mean, obviously in a touristy place like Hawaii, you probably have super nice gated resorts or whatnot. And then you also have sort of local life, local island life. He was surprised when he came across this really good pizza and it made him think about sort of his surroundings and the world around him. And one thing that Don Norman's really big on is like how to solve a lot of these societal problems or challenges. So when he started breaking it down, how pizza could save the world, he utilized pizza as a, metaphor? a system or way of viewing problems. Yeah, a metaphor. So he suggested that pizza is like an open source platform. So it was conceived in Italy, but available globally. Most people can have access to it in terms of like participating within the platform. It can be made in an artisanal way for locals or it can be scaled globally like Pizza Hut. And he started to kind of pinpoint how pizza as a platform could be a way to look at the big challenges today. And what he meant by that was like, if you look at everything around us, you have independence, you have large producers, but with this mindset of everyone having some sort of contribution, you could start utilizing that and the way pizza has sort of crept into all corners of the world as a way to work through clean energy, healthcare, and governmental challenges. Pizza, as we know it, is flexible, comes in various shapes, round, square, heart-shaped, different toppings, different cooking methods, and even along the way can also foster new inventions, like maybe a new pizza oven or some sort of thing that helps make the process a bit better, right? Maybe it's like a way to store pizza so you can get it to a destination and then it's just as good as if it was fresh. Okay, so but what's through, this look like in real ways? So what does it look like in real ways? So the way that he looked at it was like, pizza's a platform, right? So he has this quote towards the end. It's like, platforms are enablers. They let people who don't know each other or speak the same language to trust, use, and co-develop the systems that power much of the world. And his final quote was, we need more societal platforms. They can engage, organize, and amplify human potential. They can come in many shapes and sizes and be recombined and used in unforeseen ways. They can be used for both small and large enterprises. They can encompass civic, academic, commercial, technological, and faith-based ecosystems. You can never have too many open societal platforms, just as you can never have too much pizza. So I would argue that he's not trying to use pizza as a way to solving any particular problem so much as applying the power of pizza. <laughs> Sounds funny saying that. Applying the power of pizza and how you think about it and how people interact with pizza yeah. as a way of shaping problems. So yeah. the reason I found this interesting was I think if you basically just gave people those last two quotes with no mention of pizza and no sort of 
precursor, it would come across as really complex. But I think once you start reconstituting it and taking those ideas based on almost the democratic nature of pizza, that's when you can sort of link up these complex ideas. Mm, interesting. So you found this article compelling, not because it presents necessarily a new innovative idea, but because of the way it presents it. Yeah, and how to think about things. Because in my opinion, if you know how to take problems and you know how to break them off into component parts, also rebuild them back up, and you have a kind of holistic point of view on every step of the way, like you know what a good pizza looks like and tastes like, but you also know how to make the pizza. Yeah. I think that it allows you to kind of understand how different challenges form, what are challenges that may arise and how to solve for them. Let's use pizza as an example. It's like, it, there's so many complexities that go into it, I'm sure. Like, what is the ratio of flour to water or whatever? Or what toppings go well together? And understanding all these things could potentially materialize helps you understand a problem. And I think that's the one thing I'm trying to kind of lean into is that if you can understand and utilize these metaphors as ways of explaining challenging topics and maybe it's dumbing it down. I don't I don't I don't, I don't really look so. at it as such. I don't think it's dumbing yeah, I don't it think down. So either. I think what's interesting to me is actually not what you described about how if you understand a pizza making process, then that gives you more insight into the world. But it's like this kind of person who can sit on vacation eating a pizza and then have that remind them of something totally different and seemingly not related. And I'm interested in how do you get your mind to be in that place where you can be having a cup of coffee and then you think, oh, this cup of coffee is like ABC, you know? And yeah. I can explain ABC by describing how this coffee tastes, like for example. And that's really interesting to me. Yeah, that's the shit that's the most fascinating to me. And how can you find disparate topics or ideas and find a way to connect them? I think about how can you get your mind to work that way? Okay, have you ever played that word association game? It's not really a game because there's no winner or loser, but when you were a kid... Then it's not a game. When you were a kid and you had to go around in a circle and let's say I said octopus, what would you say? Uh, I would think sushi. Okay, and then I would say wasabi, right? So that's a game. So yeah. in the case of this article, in the case of Don Norman, it's how do you go from octopus to global societal platform? You know, where yeah. these other people might go octopus, sushi, wasabi, blah, 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 blah. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like, how but do you the, reach the for something that's different? I'm trying to work through this without making myself look stupid, but it's totally fine because I'll try anyways. It's what are the commonalities between pizza and the sort of global challenges, right? And I think the, the two things that I see as the unifying part of it are democratic methods of solving problems, of including people, mm. right? And I see pizza as pretty democratic, pretty, as he's mentioned, open source, right? Because I think that's the one thing, that's the commonality there is the open source nature. And everyone's experiences will allow them to create certain connection points. It's just, are you open to letting your mind wander? And are you open to... Well, it's not if you're open. It's like, are your 
eyes constantly scanning yeah. for things that are semi-rigid. And I see that on the basis that like, if they're in alignment, then that is like one shape. And as you start running through, you recognize, oh, these things actually might not be perfect shapes that fit into one another, but they are similar. So that's how I see like pizza's one shape. And then these sort of cultural societal problems is another shape. So that's how I've generally approached that in terms of how do you connect creative concepts? Because if you start paring away and peeling away the layers, I think at the core, a lot more problems are seemingly more similar than you'd originally thought. Mm. I mean, I'm sure that if you thought hard enough that you could find a way to connect, let's say a guitar and a laptop. I don't know. Like, I'm sure there's ways. Maybe that's probably too easy because they're both objects. But, you know, I think there's interesting ways that you could find a way to connect them and utilize that as a jump off point. Yeah, but sometimes it's not about when Don Norman was sitting down, he didn't have the global societal platform already in mind. You know, he was having his pizza. So I disagree. The reason is probably because you are not familiar, but I think this is his lifelong work. Right. So he's probably thinking about no, it. No, okay. Yeah. No, no, I understand. It's like conditioning, right? Like your brain is attuned to certain things. Like if you and I constantly do reading about basically whatever is mulling in our brains will come out, right? In the way we think about things. But what I'm saying is like, we're sitting here with this article and we already have like the starting point and the end point. But in our regular lives, the end point is not already presented to us. Like, I don't go around thinking, how can I link the guitar to the laptop? I just go around interfacing with different individual objects and subjects. And what's interesting is how can I condition my brain or put myself in situations where these connections will appear yeah. without prompting? Well, like, I don't need Eugene to say, how can you connect the guitar to the laptop? Like, my brain just thinks about, oh, this laptop connects to this guitar. Do you think there's value in this framework? Yeah. I mean, I think we agree, right? I think so. I, I, the one thing that I think is good is just to let yourself just try it out and then decide after the fact if they're relevant, right? Like, for example, let's say guitar and, and plant or whatever. Like, you start thinking, well, run through the exercise of figuring out are they actually relevant to one another? And I think that is a good way because you can either validate and or make a mistake and, and make you sort of unlock what are the things that are holding you back from making connections. Yeah. I don't know if that makes total sense so much as it's it doesn't cost you anything so much as just like try it out as a, as a personal exercise. Yeah. I actually don't have anything else to really say about this. No, me neither. Actually, this was more interesting than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> How dare you? Because honestly, because of the title, I thought this was going to be more about pizza. As an actual, I, I, yeah. actual edible food item. I, I like to take things and, and revert it back to maybe a, a larger, broader concept, usually. Yeah. Okay. You know, you know, the one thing that actually came to mind when I was thinking about this is how pizza has changed and morphed in different places. Great example is like localization of a really popular food. Yeah. So in yeah. Hong Kong… Obviously, pizza takes on a much different form than it does in New York, and the flavors, toppings, sauces are all different. Pizza is remarkably right? good for Don Norman's metaphor because it's exactly. still recognizable even when it's localized. So it can change yeah. drastically, but everyone is going to say, this is a pizza. I want to end off on this note. What is 
the craziest, most interesting, or thing that just weirds you out about a certain pizza you've seen? I mean, there's a load of Hong Kong ones that people think are weird. All the ones that have seafood on them, shrimp, octopus, seafood is weird. Thousand Island dressing, <gasps> corn. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Baked in hot dogs. They have they have hot dogs Those that bake into the weird. crust. But actually, what bums me out about pizza is pizza that has too much dough, and the dough is bad. Then it just feels like a bad piece of bread with tomato sauce. Okay, so you warned me that this article was long, but I was still unprepared for exactly how long it was. It's an easy read, though. It's an easy read, but I was like, oh, actually, this does go on for a bit. So the article that I have picked today, well, Eugene actually picked, and then I second voted it, is called How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. And it's by Anne Helen Peterson, and she's writing for BuzzFeed News. And I think part of the reason why it is long is that quite a lot of it is anecdotal. So it's about her own life, about her own experiences. And she does roughly walk us through about half of her life, starting with like being an undergraduate and then going into like her current career. But she does that in order to explain a general millennial condition. Mm -hmm. Also for anyone who is not sure what millennial entails, it's people who are about 22 to 38 right now. Do you think that's correct? Something like that. So early 20s to late 30s. Yeah. Would count. You said 28 to 38. No, I said 22 to 38. Okay. So it encompasses both me and Eugene and actually our entire Megan team. Pretty much. So she's talking about this condition where millennials feel like they're not able to do certain things. Like this is how this article starts. She talks about errand paralysis. And it's like when you don't feel like you have the energy to mail a package or to respond to non-urgent emails or, I don't know, fix your bike, right? So it's like things that are beneficial, but the benefit is not so great that you feel compelled to do it. And so looking at that starting point, she considers, well, why is this? And some people might say, oh, it's because millennials are lazy and entitled and they want other people to do these things for them. But she breaks it down and she winds up deciding it's actually because millennials are conditioned their whole lives to be working all the time. And they've been overworked for so long that they no longer recognize their own burnout. And Do you know what I find interesting? I don't know if this is going to throw this conversation off the rails, but it seems that increasingly our challenges are just as big internally as they are externally. It's kind of like you fighting yourself or you up against yourself is more than half the battle. Do you know what I mean? It's the expectation. It's you succumbing to the expectation that outside society is putting on you. Plus, you personally needing to overcome those, Right. I don't know, those barriers. Right. I mean, I agree, but I think it's what's partially interesting to me about this article is not just that she describes a condition accurately. Like she is able to describe 
some ways that I feel and then felt like, oh, that's why. Um, but also she goes into like the bigger reasons. So it's not just talking about these mental barriers that we have to overcome, but how did we wind up in this place? And I don't think I can get into all of it in as much detail as she does, but she does go through kind of like economic history, the dot-com bubble burst, the 2008 crisis, how those things affected the way millennials are raised. And I think without that, this would be less convincing because she links our internal struggles with how our society has been forming over the last 20 years. Part of me that's hesitant about this article is that it is quite North American centric because there is a good point of it that sort of pivots on the idea of student debt. And that's not necessarily something people in other countries can relate to as strongly. Yeah. Because she talks about particularly the toll of being in debt. Yeah, and- like I'm, I'm trying to think like, do you think what plagues millennials in North America, in China, whatever, is consistent? I think it can't possibly be. Because I'm some, trying to think about it. Some I'm, things, I was thinking about it too as I was reading this, because some things are global, right? Like she describes Instagram and how Instagram contributes to this feeling like you're not seceding yet. But even Instagram usage in North America versus China is different. Like social media usage is different. And, mm. and her article does do a lot of this... Um, evidence finding in societal events, right? And if that's the case, then the millennial condition she describes is more specific to a North American millennial. And while I'm sure there are similarities between the US 27-year-old and the Beijing 27-year-old, there are also differences. And I can't say what, because I've actually read less Chinese-centric material on this well, I think I think the big one is the the pressure from their parents to succeed, inability to buy a home. Yeah, I, yeah. I, that's why I was thinking. Like, I think they're actually quite similar, m- minus a few certain. Well, cases. I can think of one thing, right? So, like, debt in the states often does wind up falling on the student themselves, right? There's less of a culture mm-hmm. of where your family is helping you pay off the debt or helps you pay your tuition, whereas in China, actually families mostly help out. So even though, yes, the Chinese 20-something-year-old also cannot afford a home, they are probably not in as much crippling debt. Yeah. So I don't, that, that must change your mindset, right? I mean, she goes into describing when you are not sure if you have financial security, you can't make steady choices. Yeah. I agree with that. I I agree as well. And it's not that you're constantly thinking, I don't have money, I don't have money. It's just that barely getting by is a constant cognitive load. And you have to operate while also having that load on your mind. And I've actually experienced Mm -hmm. that too after switching to the master's program is having to be more conscious about my finances because I I do still make money, but I don't make as much money. And I'm also spending more money than I used to. Hey, you don't need to explain that to a media startup founder, okay? I get it. <laughs> well, I just use it to like 
Yeah, I'm because you you're married, right? And you and Nicole have to have also like probably tough looks at your own finances as well. Yeah, I think that element of like financial literacy, financial security. I don't know, man. I I think it's so critically important because I've been fortunate enough to not have it force my hand. It does subtly, don't get me wrong, but I think that you having absolutely no choice but a binary outcome of this or that, like I haven't really experienced that. Mm -hmm. But I think that for some people, yeah, that's there's tons of people every single day that are probably forced to make a decision they don't want to make because of that, right? And it definitely wears on you because as I understand anyways, it's like you're looking at all these things that that are both practical, like do I have a roof over my head? Am I going to eat? Versus the psychological pressures as well. And that's kind of what I was talking about at the beginning. It was like the psychological pressures that you have to battle through are actually pretty heavy. Because that can arguably be just important. It's kind of like a lot of people will say sports is about you battling yourself versus you battling like an opponent or whatever it may be. Like just very basic yeah. Yeah. analogy. But I think that it's something that I've recognized more. And I let's call this an unpopular opinion just so that, you know, Maybe it it removed me from some... No, it's not that I don't believe in it. But of all the things, of all these challenges that are kind of laid out, at what point if someone had full control over their emotions or whatever, maybe, do you think that could change and dictate how they look at the problems and their happiness? I think yes. I don't know. No, I think yes. But the problem is that unless we're spending time with ourselves regularly thinking through it or we find time to go to therapy, we are not that in touch with how we are really feeling. Mm -hmm. We don't actually, I agree that if we knew our own emotions better, we could make better decisions and have a more regular control over how we behave, right? But the, the root, the root of that is understanding your own emotions. And I don't think that's necessarily so easy to come by. Got it. But actually, yeah, I just didn't want to come across as being insensitive so much as I was just curious. But I think the struggle is, I think your premise is correct, but I think the struggle is that we don't actually take that much time to understand why we feel the way we do. Or also because we don't know how. Huh. Like time, obviously time makes it easier because you can work through it, but maybe you also potentially don't have the framework or starting point. And like that, that right. friction to overcome actually might just turn you off. Right. Well, it's kind of like what Peterson said is that the society tells us is that we're just being lazy and entitled. So it's easy for us to feel emotions like burnout and then just think, oh, actually, I'm just being lazy or I'm being entitled, e- even if mm-hmm. that's not really true. There's a quote yeah. I wanted to read that was one point that I found particularly relevant to myself. And she writes, to adult is to complete your to-do list, but everything goes on the list and the list never ends. That's one of the most ineffable and frustrating expressions of burnout. It takes things that should be enjoyable and flattens them into a list of tasks intermingled with other obligations that should either be easily or dutifully completed. The end result is that everything from wedding celebrations to registering to vote becomes tinged with resentment and anxiety and avoidance. 
And the reason why this spoke to me is that while I was in Hong Kong and doing things that should have been enjoyable, such as spending time with my family, I also had this underlying feeling of anxiety and avoidance. Like I feel guilty for enjoying myself and for taking time away from work because I should be working. And then also feeling at the same time, weirdly like resentful because of other people's claim over my time. And I'm not saying that these were extreme emotions. It's just that like low lying underneath what I was doing. Well, I think part of me also, to that point, it feels like I equate happiness and accomplishment with crossing a task off (laughs) of a list than I do, you're right, the actual fact of doing it. Yeah, but then the problem is that your list doesn't end. She talks about this too. So everything that you cross off does not come with significant accomplishment or achievement because your list is unending. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I believe in that. Yeah. Do you think that this article serves more as something to explain why we're feeling the way we are and it kind of stops there? Or is there anything that people can take away in hopes of improving their own situation? Or does it really just come down to like, do you want to change it or not? I think this article is really more of an explanatory article. The author kind of works through why she feels the way she does and thinks through these are the bigger picture reasons why people like me have these struggles. And she doesn't really end with solutions. She does present what she's feeling, but it's nothing specific. Like her conclusion is, This is what she writes. I don't have a plan of action other than to be more honest with myself about what I am and am not doing and why, and to try to disentangle myself from the idea that everything good is bad and everything bad is good. This isn't a task to complete or a line on a to-do list or even a New Year's resolution. It's a way of thinking about life and what joy and meaning we can derive, not just from optimizing it, but living it, which is another way of saying it's life's actual work. So nothing really specific. It's really more of like, I've decided to frame the way I live in this way. And she does also say, you know, this might not be your own conclusion. Your own conclusion could be different. So of all the people I've shared this with, quite a few people have admitted that it really struck a chord with them. How does it feel to have someone lay it all out and construct such a strong and all-encompassing landscape as to why things the way they are? Like, how do you feel about it personally? I kind of feel like you're trying to walk me into an answer and I'm just going to give you the answer oh, actually, you d- want. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. Oh, okay. Honestly. Because my answer is it does make me feel less alone. Mm-hmm. Because I think part of the problem of the anxiety and the resentment is that you feel like other people have it together and you're the only one who's slacking. Mm-hmm. I personally, you know, to really bring it close to home is that Sometimes for making work, I I feel like I'm dropping the ball the most. And I know it's like a terrible frame of mind to be like, I'm specifically slacking more than, you know, Scott Elphick, Nathan, Chris, et cetera. But sometimes that happens to my brain. But it's kind of nice. Or it's not nice because it sounds like terrible. Like we're all in this pain together. But the idea that also Scott, Nathan, Elphick, Chris, 
etc. feels the same way, I don't know, gives me comfort. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't make, it doesn't give me comfort in the sense that we're all struggling together. It's just that like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm not the only person. And so I'm not like delusional alone. Yeah, like I think about that too because there there is it's we we serve different roles within the the making world, right? The making ecosystem. Like I I am technically the person that needs to drive things forward. I need to empower and or encourage, but I also need to recognize that I will always care more than anyone else. Like I think that's just naturally how it works, right? So then what is the expectation versus the sustainability of something? And to recognize that at some point, like for things to slow down momentarily because it's more sustainable for the long run, sometimes you have to recognize that that is the solution that needs to be taken versus trying to ram people into the ground. Or not ram, run people in the ground. Well, I think... I don't personally think that it means I need to work less. Like I don't think working less solves the anxiety and it's also not working more. I think it has to be something outside of task completion that makes it sustainable. And mm-hmm. it it does have to be a bit like Peterson said, you know, thinking about okay, if this is what I want to accomplish in terms of work, why is that? Why am I doing it? And then being able to be at peace with the why might make it easier to do the things as opposed to like, I just have to do these things because they're all on my to-do list. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not saying that I feel this way and it means that, that, that's why I was saying, you know, the vacation didn't necessarily work in Amsterdam. It doesn't mean that like by taking time off from work, I then, I then solve all of the problems or that anyone can solve the problems by going on vacation. Mm-hmm. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I don't think we are trying to ram people into the ground by, you know, giving them a lot of tasks or giving them a lot of responsibility. But to be responsible, it's also making sure people know why they do the things they do or why you want them to do the things they do. And then also trying to understand their general motivation as a person. So another question I have too is, if we look at the accomplishments that we have, a lot of people are guilty of not celebrating their wins, right? How should we approach that then if we all recognize that it's an endless list of tasks that need to be accomplished. And even if you accomplish something, it actually means nothing because what is one task, even if it might be really big, out of what is an infinite list? And do we need to reassess what we do around successes and victories to make it more sustainable so you well, don't incur what if What if success and victory is more individually determined? What if it doesn't have to be winning a award from some global company or making it onto some list, but your successes and victories are genuinely what you as an individual think of as a success and a success for yourself, not a success because this is some outside assessment. Let's say actually the biggest success for me would be if 
I worked out every day. Mm-hmm. And for me, like I would have a greater sense of victory than any other career accomplishments. That should be okay. And I should be able to celebrate that. But I think it starts by identifying what it is that you genuinely consider to be worth celebrating yeah, or significant to yourself. It's, well, it's kind of like what Alex was, Alex Mayland was writing when he wrote about the Cavalan whiskey. Yeah. So Alex Mayland wrote this Instagram post about how Julia gave him a bottle of Cavalan whiskey and, and you as well. And he was kind of saving it for a big career win in terms of the business, in terms of making, but he ultimately decided to open it with his dad. And he framed it as deciding to celebrate these personal achievements or personal milestones as opposed to professional ones. Yeah. And, and I think success still can be professional if that's what is important to you. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, at the end of the day, I think that everyone has a different perspective on how they want to assess things. But maybe maybe what you had mentioned is the actual answer in that not everyone has their shit together, right? And that there is some sort of relief in knowing that other people, should you want to open up or discuss things, are there to be a support network. Because I would argue that people often look at you and they expect a certain answer. No, how do I put this? Like people might come up to you and be like, oh, you must be so successful and you must, you know, have so much yeah. going for you. But like there's a lot of shit behind the scenes that obviously you don't share to social media, but it's just as impactful. Yeah. It's like the iceberg, right? The iceberg is whatever is the nice stuff at the top, but it's probably a lot of stuff behind the scenes as well. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, I think that's why your editor's letter resonated with so many people. It's because whether you want people to have this impression of you or not, they have an impression of success. And I think your writing honestly about your struggles does land with an impact because of people's perception of you. Yeah. Yeah. Which is good. I mean, I want people to understand. And I think that this article reflects that too. It's like, we we personally might have always been someone that might defer to like, let's just offer a solution because then we can move the ball forward. But sometimes it doesn't even need to come to that. It's just like, hey guys, we're going through this. We think some other people are. Let's just put it on the open so that we can all talk about it. And maybe there is something else there where there are different levels of connectivity where you might be a celebrity, right? Or you might be just a regular person someone respects. So that whole gamut is sort of represented and we've seen it through mental health and whatnot. And I think that's why they've honestly been so impactful Mm -hmm. because at every step, you know, people connect with people on different levels and what makes the most sense to you, I think, is really to hopefully have selective touch points with people that mean something to you. Yeah. Is that a good place to cap things off? Yeah, that's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in learning more about making, reading, and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at makin.com, M-A-E-K-A-N. 
You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.